Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Kim and I went on safari in Africa this summer, a gift from our wildly generous friend, Tim Collins. We flew to Rwanda to trek through potato fields, terraced into the sides of the Virunga volcanoes in the northwest corner of the country, up through dense jungle to where trackers were waiting with families of mountain gorillas, the species American primatologist and conservationist Diane Fossey famously, heroically saved from extinction. Picking our way through the lush tangle of shimmering green foliage, suddenly we were in the midst of these extraordinary beings sharing the morning with 400 plus pound primates with whom we share 98% of our DNA. It was beyond our wildest imaginations. But Rwanda is much, much more than that. The first thing you notice as you ride through the capital city of Kigali is that it is immaculate. That is in part and thanks to a pioneering ban on plastic bags. But it is so much more. And when you learn why, you have a window into Rwanda's extraordinary people, the beauty they have brought forth from unimaginable suffering. The first time I remember Rwanda being in my consciousness was the spring of 1994. My friend Mike Ward and I were about to give a talk at Kripalu, a spiritual wellness community in Western Massachusetts, when the person introduced us, introducing us asked for a moment of silence. A terrible civil war had broken out there, he said, and across the tiny country, Hutus were slaughtering Tutsis and moderate Hutus. I had no way to get my mind around that, and I still don't. We now know that while the world stood idly by in the course of 100 days, one million Rwandans lost their lives. Years later, in 1999, as a member of the Women Waging Peace Initiative, I met my first Rwandans. One of them was Rose Kabuye. Raised and educated in Uganda, she joined the Rwandan Patriotic Front. When the RPF was poised to cross the boundary into northern Rwanda, making their way to Kigali to retake the capital and try to stop the genocide, Rose had just given birth to a baby girl. In the swell of the advancing forces, she turned from the tide just long enough to hand over her infant, then joined that first wave of the invasion. 
Against all odds, the RPF was successful, and in 1994, Rose Kabuye was appointed mayor of Kigali. Another Rwandan, one who became a close friend, was Aloysia Inyumba. Aloysia's neighbors had been murdered. Like many other survivors, she adopted their children. Aloysia Inyumba went on to be the executive secretary of the National Unity and Reconciliation Commission, the Rwandan version of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In other words, most of what I knew of Rwanda concerned the genocide. In fact, it's a huge part of what Rwanda is today, the trauma, but more importantly, the recovery. Before we arrived, we were told that the Rwandans are eager to talk about what happened, that they are doing everything they can to assure that it will never happen again, and sharing with each of us what we can do to assure that it will never happen again. For starters, they said, the single thing we were asked not to do was to ask anyone's tribal affiliation. The Rwandans have unequivocally declared that there are no more Hutu or Tutsi, no tribes. There are only Rwandans. We are, they say, one Rwanda. At the heart of their recovery, and now their indisputable thriving, is Umuganda. Umuganda. It's a Kinrwandan word meaning coming together in common purpose. It means selfless service, working shoulder to shoulder for the improvement and uplift of their country and the world. And this service has been institutionalized on the last Saturday morning of every month from 8 to 11, every able-bodied Rwandan aged 18 to 65 participates in Umuganda. Umuganda existed long before the genocide, but not in this more formal sense. Traditionally, it was embedded in the Rwandan cultural emphasis on communal problem solving. Then, in the 1970s, under a repressive government, it was distorted to become a subtle form of forced labor. During the genocide, people did unthinkable things in a violent perversion of Umuganda. But in 2001, not long after Paul Kagame, leader of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, became Rwanda's new president, Umuganda was institutionalized and became central to the country's recovery from the terrible ruins of the genocide. The president himself sets aside the last Saturday morning and pitches in. Did I say that the mean age of Rwandans is 19 years old? You can picture this. People, young and old, are clearing the roads of every last piece of trash and debris, trimming back bushes that attract malaria-spreading mosquitoes and rehabilitating wetlands, helping out on farms whose owners are elderly, building houses for unhoused people, offering transportation to medical appointments, cleaning community wells. Public works projects include activities that support infrastructure development and environmental conservation. 
People with particular skills offer three hours of services for free. Though Umuganda is a national phenomenon, it happens at the community level in pods of roughly 50 households. They communicate on WhatsApp to sort out the logistics. If you miss Umuganda, says Patrick Karakezi, a Kigali-based community development community, if you miss it, it feels like you're the only person that's missed. You are not going to find people missing. In the height of the pandemic, vaccinated citizens and community leaders went door to door to address vaccine hesitancy, encouraging their neighbors to get vaccinated. And earlier, soon after the lockdown began, a Ministry of Education analysis found that classrooms were overcrowded, making physical distancing to prevent the spread of COVID-19 impossible. The government put forth a plan to build over 22,500 new classrooms and almost 32,000 latrines across the country's 30 districts and asked the people to help. And they did. It was done. Citizen Robert Mugabo says, that's something we do happily, in a good way, in as short a time as possible. And Umuganda spills over into the rest of the week. We don't take the whole day, Robert explains. We do shifts. Today I go in the morning and maybe tomorrow I go in the evening, as much as I get the time. One Umuganda project that really caught my attention began with a simple question. Alexa, kukyu tumva kin Rwanda? That question, Alexa, why don't you understand kin Rwanda? Would be easily recognized by some 12 million kin Rwanda speakers in Rwanda, Eastern Congo, and parts of Southern Uganda. But when directed at one, any one of the world's three most popular voice assistants, Alexa, Google Assistant, or Siri, the response is always, sorry, I don't understand. Actually, Africa has over a thousand native languages, but the three best-selling voice assistants can't respond to a single one of them. To remedy this, Mozilla, the nonprofit tech company that created the Firefox internet browser, launched an open source initiative called Common Voice. Aimed at democratizing voice data, Common Voice makes it easy to donate your voice, your language, accent, intonations, and speech patterns to a publicly accessible database. Then Rwanda launched Digital Umuganda to build an infrastructure of voice data. Volunteers began donating their voice data, making Kin Rwanda one of the fastest growing African languages on the Common Voice platform. So the history of Rwanda is both this cautionary tale in the same company as Nazi Germany, and in modern times, a powerful lesson in resilience and recovery. A country once known for brutal ethnic cleansing is now remarkably safe. The public spaces are famously clean, and this beautiful cultural unity prevails. And its people are joyful. The kind of joy that comes from being part of something bigger than our individual selves. I'm wondering 
what Umuganda might look like in our lives. When Kem and I aren't living with 30 teenagers in Concord Academy faculty housing, we make little getaways to our home on Cape Cod. There's a critical mass of there, us there who understand both the perils and the blessings of small town living, doing what we can to avoid the former and effect the latter. Two weekends ago was a great example. Four young Afghanis, two sisters, Fahima, a visual artist, and Parastu, a journalist, their brother, Sardar, a dentist, and their brother's girlfriend, Huma, a musician, escaped the Taliban. Huma was in the most danger. In addition to being female, educated, and an artist, the Taliban had used a photo of her in a propaganda video denouncing the National Music School. After the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan two years ago, banning all music, Huma hid her sitar and eventually made her way to join Sardar and his, her sisters here in the States. A member of the board of Silk Road, which offers refugee fellowships here in the States, was so moved by Huma's plight that he had a sitar shipped from India. The series of photos of Huma cutting away the layers and layers of wrapping brought tears to my eyes. They showed a birth and a rebirth. By grace, Kathy Fletcher, former executive director of Silk Road, met these four, and she and her husband, David Simpson, caught them in their safety net. With no time to lose, they activated their network to help the Afghanis make their way as new Americans. Arlington Street's Mary Galach donated summer housing. Others helped with food, clothing, transportation, and legal aid. And then something magical happened. Sardar proposed to Huma, and Kathy and David announced that there would be a wedding. If any of you has been on the receiving end of the bills for an American wedding, you know it can be a wildly expensive affair. What I love is that Kathy and David had perfect faith that with a little Cape Cod Umuganda, the impossible would be done. I met with the couple explaining that no weddings here don't last for four hours, and that yes, they really would be expected to kiss in front of all of us. A huge departure from Afghani culture in which there are no public displays of affection. I sent them home to practice. At the same time, in short order, a venue was donated, a musician friend, a DJ, and a sound system appeared. Fahima, Parastu, and Huma cooked traditional Afghani food for the wedding buffet, and the tables were set. My friends Kristen and Liz gathered flowers from their gardens and made an exquisite wedding bower, as well as Huma's bouquet. Everyone brought bottles of wine. We divided ourselves into setup and cleanup, and in between, there was indeed a wedding and a kiss, a small miracle of Umuganda, and a great flood of goodwill and pure happiness. Also this summer, there was a wonderful example of Umuganda of which we, Arlington Street, was a part. As you'll remember, our own Barb Seidel has a friend and colleague, Silva, a news cameraman, 
who posted footage of protests against the Congolese government. When the government tried to kill him, Silva and his wife fled for their lives and landed in the United States as political asylees. Their daughters, 16-year-old Deborah and 11-year-old Abigail, escaped and hid out in South Africa. Because they were undocumented there, they couldn't leave the apartment without risking being rounded up as illegals and arrested. While awaiting approval of visas to reunite the young women with their parents, one year and three months of waiting, Barbara stepped in and invited us to help with providing food and support for these young women. We did generously with Share the Plate offerings and Arlington Street, Umuganda. This summer, Abigail's visa finally, finally came through and she was reunited with her parents. Four days later, she started seventh grade in a small town in the Midwest where she joined the soccer team and the school choir. Her journey from South Africa and her school supplies were funded almost entirely by Arlington Street and UU St. Pete, the Unitarian Universalist Church in Florida, where Barbara's parents, Anne and Fred, are members. We're not done. A new visa application has been filed for Deborah, who remains in hiding. But let's celebrate this precious victory of Umuganda and the resilience of a young woman who survived terrorism and treachery to play soccer and sing. Her father, Silva, says, please tell the people of your church, I'm so grateful for them. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for Abigail. Thank you, Barbara. Beloved spiritual companions, this is church at its best. Beloved spiritual community, at its best. Joining together to do small things and great things that none of us could accomplish alone. Umuganda makes our community better, makes us better. Aligned at a soul deep level with our mission, answering our call to prophetic hospitality and generosity and love. What more love, service, justice, and peace might we bring to the world by coming together in common purpose, gathering under the banner of Umuganda. Let us find out together. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Because the world is poor and starving, go with bread. Because the world is filled with fear, go with courage. Because the world is sick with sorrow, go with joy. Because the world is seldom fair, go with justice. Because the world is weary of war, go with peace. Because the world is under judgment, go with mercy because the world will die without it. Go with love.
Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.